Well, it's great to be together again and great to be opening God's words together this evening. So as we look at the chapters of Genesis 47 and 48, there's a shift in focus. So, so far as we've gone through this series together, we've been looking predominantly at the life of Joseph. But the focus tonight shifts over um, back in the narrative of the book of Genesis to the life of Jacob. And as a result, I think to understand these two chapters, we really need to recap a little on the life of Jacob so that we understand where this fits into the story of his life and where this fits into his narrative. And so my plan is this. I want to split the next half an hour into thirds. I want to spend the first 10 minutes looking at an overview of Jacob's life. And then I want to spend 10 minutes looking at chapter 47 and 10 minutes looking at chapter 48 together. And I hope that by looking at the background to Jacob's life, we can put this, these chapters in context. And so rather than just giving myself two chapters to look at, I've just added 12 to the picture. And so we're going to try and race through this background of Jacob's life together. And in order to do that, I've come up with 13 words, all of which begin with the letter B, and hopefully only one of which is contrived. So let's go. We start with his birth. So we join the story after Isaac's wife, Rebecca, falls pregnant with twins. And she feels the children struggle within her, it says. And she asks God why this might be. And he replies prophetically, saying, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so the eagerly awaited time of the birth arrives, and Jacob comes out second, holding Esau's heel. And that's where we get his name, Jacob, which resembles a Hebrew for heel, but also has a connotation of deception, because the phrase grasping the heel was a Hebrew idiom, for deception. And so that's his birth. And then we move on to the birthright. So one day, Esau, who I imagine is the kind of outdoor type who would enjoy climbing Munro's on a weekend, came in from hunting and he was exhausted and famished. And his brother, Jacob, who is the type to have preferred a, a leisurely brunch in town, happens to have some stew on the stove. And Esau asks for a portion and Jacob oblige, obliges but demands Esau's birthright in exchange. A steep price to pay for a bowl of stew. But Esau is so hungry that he agrees and forever resents Jacob for it. But as it turns out, this is just a foretaste of things to come. Because next up, we have the blessing. So nearing the end of his life, their father Isaac calls for Esau and asks him to prepare a meal before he gives him his dying blessing. But Rebecca, whose favourite son is Jacob, she overhears and she persuades Jacob to take matters into his own hands and impersonate his brother. She cooks up a storm and Jacob straps goatskins to his neck and forearms to make him feel like his more hirsute elder brother. Isaac is duped and blesses Jacob instead of Esau bestowing God's material riches on him and making him lord over his brother. And with almost comedic timing, Esau arrives back to discover what has happened moments too late. 
he receives the, the blessing that's left and Jacob is forced to flee for his life. And on that journey, he reaches Bethel. And he has a dream which involves a ladder stretching from earth to heaven with angels descending and ascending. And at the top stands the Lord who speaks to Jacob and gives him a promise. A promise that he and his many descendants will inherit the land where he is lying as he sleeps. And that all the nations will be blessed through them. And that's important. Remember that for later. All the nations will be blessed through him and his descendants. Amazed, Jacob names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And then he continues on his journey. And he reaches his uncle Laban's place in Haran and immediately falls in love with uh, Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. He works for seven years as down payment for her hand in marriage. But we're told it feels like just a few days. Such was his love for her. If that's not a challenge to the husbands, as Paul brought us this morning, then I don't know what is. However, the morning after the big day, Jacob realises that Laban has deceived him and actually given him his elder daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. He's married the wrong woman. Laban agrees kindly enough to give him Rachel too, but only after another seven years of hard labour, to which Jacob duly agrees. So he moves on from his two brides to babies, and there's lots of them. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Lord sees that Jacob loves Rachel and hates Leah. And so God blesses Leah with children, whereas Rachel remains barren. Four children later, Rachel becomes jealous of Leah and gives her servant, Bilhah, to Jacob so she can have children to call her own. Two children to Bilhah later, Leah responds in kind and gives her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob to the same end and with the same results. Two more children to add to their collection. Leah then has a further two children of her own, giving a running total of ten. Only then does Rachel finally have a child. His name is Joseph, and he occupies a special place in his father's heart. Now, during this time, Joseph continues working for Uncle Laban and becomes very prosperous indeed, causing Laban to become increasingly envious of his success. As a result, they decide to part company and reach a settlement regarding Jacob's Jews. Even then, Laban tries to cheat him out of what is rightfully his, but Jacob continues to prosper through his ingenuity and God's blessing. Laban resents him all the more and banishes him back to the land of his father where Esau awaits. And we moved on from banishment to a brawl. On the way, Jacob sends his family ahead as they ford the Jabbok River. And left alone on the other side, he wrestles with a stranger all night, as you do. Unable to overpower him, the man dislocates Jacob's hip. But, stubborn as ever, and despite his injury, Jacob refuses to release his grip on the man until he blesses him. The man subsequently tells him that his name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, which means he strives with God thus bringing to a climax a lifetime of struggling with others. Meanwhile, Jacob catches up with his family and gets word that Esau is approaching with an entourage of 400 men. Fearful of what awaits, he sends gifts ahead in an attempt to appease Esau. 
In the end, they are reunited peacefully, but they go their separate ways, with Jacob and his family settling in Shechem. But Shechem turns out to be the scene of a bloodbath. You see, whilst in Shechem, Leah's daughter, Dina, is raped by the prince's son, who then asks for her hand in marriage. Her brothers are incensed, but they play along and consent to the marriage on the condition that all the city's males are circumcised. Then, on the third day, when all the men were recovering, Simeon and Levi storm Shechem and kill all of the males before plundering the city. Following this unsavoury episode, God instructs Jacob and his family to give up their foreign gods, purify themselves, and go up to Bethel for a second time. God appears to Jacob once more and reiterates that his name is now to be Israel. He informs Jacob that many nations and kings will descend from him and the land bequeathed to Abraham and Isaac will be given to him. So as they travel on from Bethel, Rachel goes into labour and gives birth to her second child, Benjamin. But sadly, she dies in childbirth and Jacob is bereaved of the love of his life. So that's an overview of Jacob's story up to the point where we joined it in Exodus chapter 36, as we started our series looking at the life of Joseph. A kind of colourful history, shall we say. An awful lot going on there and an awful lot to reflect on as we look at these next two chapters this evening. And so then we fast forward through the life of Joseph and we come to chapters 47 and 48. Last week we saw the big reveal as Joseph disclosed his true identity to his brothers. And then towards the end of chapter 46, Joseph and his father are emotionally reunited. If you have your Bibles open there, Genesis 46 and verse 30 says, Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I've seen for myself that you are still alive. His precious son, who he thought he'd lost all those years ago. Finally, they reunited and they see each other face to face. And this is to be a pivotal uh, moment in Israel's life. Suddenly, it's as if the missing puzzle piece is slotted into place and he begins to understand what he could never see before about God's providential plan for the people and for his life. And that's where we join things. So Joseph hatches a plan to secure the land of Goshen for his family. Why Goshen? Well, it's an area ideally suited to herdsmen, such as his family were, and it's situated in close proximity to him. And that's where we're at as we reach Genesis chapter 47. So let's read together the first 12 verses of Genesis chapter 47. Joseph went and told Pharaoh... My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we've come to live here a while. Because a famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle 
in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. And God will bless the reading of his word. So I only really want to focus on a few verses in chapter 47. A few verses which I think have a great deal of significance. Look together with me, if you would, at verse 7. We see Joseph bringing his father, Jacob, and presenting him before Pharaoh, the mighty ruler of all Egypt, at its zenith of its power. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Jacob, this obscure Jew, blesses the potentate of Egypt. Now, the Queen's birthday honours list was released yesterday. Don't know if any of you pay attention to that kind of thing. I don't think I normally do. But as I read this and, and saw that headline, I was trying to think what this was like. And I think if you imagine, as the Queen goes tonight, uh, one of her latest commanders of the empire, perhaps Kevin Spacey, imagine him kneeling down and then at the last moment, standing and brandishing a sword of his own and knighting her instead. That's what's happening in this passage. Jacob is blessing Pharaoh. It's totally the wrong way round. Pharaoh has just granted him and his family the land of Goshen, which we read in verse 6 is the best part of the land. You think he would be bowing down and, uh, you know, worshipping him or acknowledging him uh, and, and thanking him for the gift that he's given them. But instead, he blesses Pharaoh. Why is that? Why is it that Jacob feels he has a right to bless the commander, the Pharaoh of Egypt? Well, that's what I want to explore as we look at chapter 46. And I think we get an understanding from the next verses. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. I wonder how you would sum up your life in a single sentence. I wonder how you'd sum up your life in a single sentence. One of the quotes I read said, if you can sum up your life in a single sentence, then you haven't lived much of a life. But I think there's maybe more to it than that. Now, Ernest Hemingway famously said that his best work was a story that he wrote in just six words. And a few years ago, back in 2007, a national newspaper challenged a group of celebrities 
to be equally economical in summing up their lives and gave them six words to sum up their lives. I'm just going to show you two of my favourites. This comes from Blake Morrison, a poet and author. His six words were this, womb, bloom, groom, gloom, room, tomb. Pretty well encapsulates a lot of, a lot of life from beginning to end, doesn't it? Or what about Anne Widdicombe? Bold, brunette, blonde, grey, white, bald. A nice full circle there. How would you sum up your life in a single sentence? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because here we have Jacob's answer to that question. If we look down at verse 9, he says, My years have been few and difficult. Or, as the ESV renders it, my years have been few and evil. What a summary of your life. <laughs> Imagine looking back with the uh, wisdom of retrospection and saying, my years have been few and evil, and they do not equate to the years of my pilgrimage of my fathers. And yet we've seen, have we not, as we've looked at this recap of Jacob's life, that he's had a challenging time. Throughout his life, Jacob had tried to scheme his way to both blessing and prosperity. And yet what was he left for from his efforts? He was hated by his brother, alienated by his uncle, bereaved of his favourite wife, estranged from the other three, grieving his favourite son, or so he thought, and ashamed of the remaining licentious and murderous brothers. Jacob had lost everything apart from Benjamin. And God promises him to him back at Bethel that he and his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan and that all of the nations would be blessed through them. It must have seemed like a distant pipe dream. And yet here Jacob stood before the mighty Pharaoh next to his son, the son who he thought he'd lost, Joseph, now Egypt's second in command, who was single-handedly sustaining the entire region through a devastating famine. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, Joyce Baldwin says this, It was obvious that the Lord had made Joseph a blessing to Egypt and the surrounding nations, all unbeknown to Jacob. And the wonder of the Lord's mastery of events had overwhelmed him to such an extent that Jacob forgot all about the protocol. Jacob didn't bless Pharaoh because of an inflated sense of his own importance, but rather because of a fresh insight into God's providential hand, moving behind the scenes, unbeknownst to him, to achieve his purposes. And whilst Jacob readily acknowledged that his days had been few and evil, his faith was in an eternal and beneficent God who had used his family, in spite of their many failings, as a channel through which Egypt and the surrounding nations had been greatly blessed in fulfilment of God's promises. And so we see that Jacob had moved from his perceived failure 
to fulfillment of God's promises given to him back at Bethel. And what had he done to move from that position, from failure to fulfillment? Well, he'd not done anything, but he'd seen what God had done in the background. His eyes had been opened to God's providential hand, moving unbeknownst to him. And it was his confidence in that almighty God and the central role with which he had been invested that led Jacob to bless the most powerful man in the land. But notice also that Jacob's confidence in God's power to fulfill his promises didn't only exist on an abstract level or a general level, but also on a personal level. So as we'll come on to see in chapter 48, Jacob refers to the angel who's redeemed me from all evil. You see, though he concedes before Pharaoh that his days have been few and evil, nevertheless, Jacob now sees that through the challenging circumstance he has faced, often of his own engineering, God has been gradually molding and refining him, making him into the man that he intended him to be. And so what can we learn from this? Well, perhaps some of us are facing situations, just like Jacob's, where it's difficult to see God's hand at work and all hope seems lost. Well, at times like these, we can take solace in the many examples of God's faithfulness throughout the scriptures and the unshakable promises that we, his children, have been given in his word. Promises like this one. Romans 8 verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So often this verse is quoted in a kind of trite way. But in Jacob, we have an example of someone who faced great strife and adversity and yet was able to look back in praise and see God's hand in it all. That's not to say that the experiences he faced were easy, or enjoyable, but they did serve a greater purpose in his sanctification. And just as was the case for Jacob, these promises don't just apply on an abstract level, but they also apply to us on a personal level. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I wonder what Jacob thought of his life before he was reunited with Joseph and before he saw God's plan fall into place. I wonder whether he thought that his life was wasted, that everything that he'd set out to achieve and do had fallen by the wayside. I wonder whether sometimes we feel the same. We have had great plans for our life, great desires and ambitions for things that we have longed to do for the Lord. And yet we feel that we've struggled. We feel that we've not achieved those plans. We feel that those things that we've striven after have fallen by the wayside. Well, we have 
and can take great confidence in the promises of God's word. Because our confidence going forward is not based in ourselves. It's not based in what we have achieved or what we can achieve in our own strength. But it's based in the God who has saved us and promises to complete the good work that he began in us. And we see that demonstrated here in the life of Jacob. So firstly, we see that Jacob has gone from failure or perceived failure to fulfillment as God's promises laid out to him back in Bethel are made right. Now we're going to skip over the next half of of chapter 47, but really what happens here is the um, ultimate fulfillment of that promise back in Bethel, that Jacob and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. And so Jacob, who during the seven plentiful years gathered up all of the food um, in the land and stored it up, is then able to sell it back to the people, first for money and then for their livestock and then for their land and, and a taxation. And yet the people don't feel aggrieved by all of this, but they acknowledge the truth in the situation in verse 25, where they say, you have saved our life. And so it turns out that Joseph is a saviour, not just of Egypt, but of all of the surrounding nations. And God's promises that Jacob's family would be a blessing to the surrounding nations is fulfilled. And so Jacob and his family settle in the land of Goshen. And there they live and prosper. And we read in verse 28, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. And the years of his life were 147. But then in verse 29, we see that the time drew near for Israel to die. And notice what he does. He calls for his son. But which son does he call for? Well, he calls for Joseph. Joseph and not his firstborn, Reuben. Joseph and not his firstborn Reuben. So let's read chapter 48 and see how the story unfolds. Genesis chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. 
So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left, towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. And so we see the process by which Israel blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so we come to the, ask, answer the question, why does Israel call Joseph rather than Reuben, his firstborn, to his side? Well, we learn from the next chapter, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 4, that Reuben relinquished his right to the status of firstborn because of his promiscuous behaviour with his father's wife a point that's reiterated in 1 Chronicles 5. But even despite that, Joseph remained way down the pecking order. He was brother 11 of 12. So why is he called upon when Israel seeks to give his blessing? Well, perhaps Israel nominated Joseph in recognition of the crucial part that he had played in the outworking of God's divine plan. 
and the special place his descendants held in God's providence going forward. And so Israel begins by recounting the promises that God made to him at Bethel in recognition of all that we've spoken about in chapter 47. And he then goes on to elevate his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to the status of full sons on a par with Reuben and Simeon. So look at verse 5 with me. It says, Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And so by accepting Ephraim and Manasseh and giving them equal status as full sons of his, he essentially grants Joseph a double portion of the inheritance because he's adding two sons in the place of one. And he reiterates his status as the newly designated firstborn son. And we see uh, their preeminence as a firstborn in the inheritance that they receive. Now, it's pretty difficult to see there, but when we look at the division of the tribes that happens later on and the land that they receive, you see all of this area, East Manasseh, West Manasseh, and Ephraim goes to Joseph's sons, a huge area of the promised land that they receive. They receive the firstborn's blessing and they receive a greater share of the promised inheritance. And Israel then moves on to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And we have this rather unusual confusion between the two of them. So I'm not sure it's worded in the easiest way, But look with me at verses 13 and 14, and then 17 to 20. So it says, Joseph took both of them. So we're we're at Joseph's perspective right now. And he has Ephraim on his right, so the younger on his right, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left, towards Israel's right hand. So the important thing here is that Manasseh, the firstborn, is on Israel's right hand. So the firstborn is at the right hand, the place of blessing. So Joseph's got it all sussed out and he brings them in the right order, like a well-drilled person would do. But Israel then goes and scuppers the whole plan. He reaches out his right hand and crosses it over and does the same with his left so that his hands are resting on the wrong heads. And Joseph thinks, the old man's gone balmy. So he takes his hand and tries to switch it back over. It's a slightly strange dance that's going on between the two of them. He says to him, no, my father, this one's a firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Come on, dad. But his father refuses. His father refuses. And look with me at verse 19. I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. And in so doing, he puts Ephraim, the younger son, ahead of Manasseh. So what's going on here? Is this just one last act of defiance? Is this just another example of the old Jacob doing things his way? As this scene unfolded, Israel must have thought back to the death of his own father, Isaac, and the somewhat more underhand behavior that had led 
him to receive the blessing that was due to his older brother Esau. But I don't think that's what's going on here. This isn't just him trying to recreate history, trying to give the younger brother a foot up in the same way as his mother had done for him. I think there's evidence in these verses that the old Jacob is a changed man. I think that evidence comes from three places. The first is in the content of the blessing that he gives. So let's look at that blessing in verses 15 and 16. It says, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. So there's this threefold nature to the blessing. Firstly, he talks about the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And in so doing, Israel acknowledges that, that he comes in a line of people. There were people before him, Abraham and Isaac, and there will be people after him, Ephraim and Manasseh, and the people to come. He recognises that he isn't someone special. He isn't someone different in, in many regards. He's just another person in God's plan. As we thought in the last chapter, my days are few, but God is eternal. My life will pass, but his plan will endure. And so we see in that way that, that Jacob's perspective has changed. And then he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. That strikes me as a somewhat unusual thing to say for someone who was a shepherd and knew what it was like to be a shepherd. So in order to have a shepherd, you need to be like a sheep. And what does a sheep do? Well, it follows the shepherd. And yet look as we have at the life of Jacob and you see that he didn't do much following. He was a, a constant rebel, as it were. He was always fighting with God. He was fighting with others in the womb. But in his encounters with God, you know, he wrestled with, with a man who was God overnight. He, he always fought with God. He was renamed Israel as the one who strives with God. And yet he talks about being a sheep to a shepherd. He talks about following. And we see that after all these years, the fighter has become the follower. That God has slowly been refining him and his character. But that's no transformation that's come about because of Jacob's own doing. He's quick to acknowledge God's part in it all. Joyce Baldwin puts it like this. Despite Jacob's many failings of character and conduct, he was aware that his life had had purpose and meaning because God had taken him in hand. Even though he hadn't been a conscious, submissive sheep, he saw that God had still been shepherding. He hadn't always um, consciously been submitting himself to God's plan. But nevertheless, he saw in retrospect God's crook keeping him on his path. And then we see in the third part, the angel who has delivered me from all harm. And this harks back to the three times that, that uh, Jacob encountered angels at the top of the ladder as they were descending and uh, ascending. And the time when the angel revealed what, revealed to him what to do as he was shepherding Laban's flock. 
and the time that he wrestled with a man who turned out to be the Lord. And each time, at a time when he was in danger or when he was under attack or in in times of need, he recognised that the Lord had come to his aid. The Lord had come to his assistance. It was humiliating to need such help. And Jacob was recalling here the way God had humbled him into submission when all his instinct had been to work things out for himself. And so we see the transition, how Jacob moves from scheming, as he'd always done, scheming for the birthright, scheming for the blessing, scheming to, uh, to get a larger portion of Laban's flock, scheming, scheming, scheming. And now we see him in submission to God's plan as he sees um, God's hand of providence at work in his life. So that's the first reason that I think this isn't just of Jacob's doing. The second is that we go on to see that Ephraim has an important part to play in the history of the nation of Israel. So who was an important Ephraimite? Well, Joshua, the man who was to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, was from the tribe of Ephraim. And I think that Jacob, um, in submission to God, saw or foresaw the role that Ephraim's descendants had in God's future plan and consequently gave them preeminence in his blessing. But the last reason I think that this wasn't just an act of defiance, but a, um, a God-ordained reordering comes from Hebrews. And if you would just turn quickly with me to Hebrews chapter 11 as we come to a close. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21. It says this, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. It always struck me when you read through that passage in Hebrews that it's a slightly unusual thing to be blessed for. He was blessed, or rather commended for. He was commended for blessing each of Joseph's sons. A kind of nondescript thing to be blessed for. And yet I think he's blessed for it and commended for it because he did so in submission to God, because he did so um, in humility to God, and because he did so following God's reordering of things. This is a man who's gone from doing things his own way and deciding how he's going to run his own life to doing things God's way and seeing God's order in uh, and God's plan. So an interesting couple of chapters and hopefully um, a helpful couple of chapters for us. But what can we learn from this second chapter? What can we learn from the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, I think as I've said, that we see Jacob move from a, from a man who was always scheming to a man in submission to God's plan. And this verse comes strongly to mind. This verse that is a, an encouragement and a challenge to us all. In Proverbs 3, we read this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. And he will make your paths straight. Jacob spent his life learning this. He spent his life learning not to lean 
on his own understanding. He spent his life learning to submit to God. And it's, he spent his life doing it because it took him his life to realize it. And I think we're all the same. You know, what do we do when we face times of difficulty and times of adversity? What do we do when we feel as if all is lost, as Jacob had before? Well, so often we turn to rely on our own strength. So often we try and push on with our own resources and we try and battle down our defences and rely on our own plans. And yet the lesson from the life of Jacob and the exhortation that we have in Proverbs three is to lean not on our own understanding but trust in submission the God whose providential hand is working behind the scenes to bring all things to good. Not all things will be easy, not all things will be enjoyable but all things are working to fulfill God's promises and God's plans for us and at the end of that, at the end of that promise and plan we have a glorious hope, do we not? We have a glorious hope of things to come. Now, those wonderful verses in Romans chapter 8 that talk of the inevitability with which God has saved us and continues to work in our lives. Let me just read them to you now. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we thought earlier on about the confidence that we can have going forward because God will bring to completion the work he set in us. And then we've thought in the second half, about trusting in God to bring that work to completion, about not trying to strive um, in our own strength and with our own plans, but trusting in Christ to fulfill the promises that he has made in his word as we live our lives day to day in submission to him. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we were able to join together our voices in praise and worship you of, of you earlier on as we proclaimed your faithfulness to us. And we thank you that we can look back thousands of years and we can see your enduring faithfulness to your people. A faithfulness that never changes, a faithfulness that never fades, a faithfulness that never fails. And Father, we thank you that as we seek to live lives that glorify you, that we can have a great confidence in your faithfulness to us. We thank you that we can have confidence even though we are weak and even though we so often fail because our confidence is not resting in our own abilities but in the finished work of our precious saviour and we thank you for the hope that we have in him a hope that endures forever and so father i pray as we go out this week that we might live lives in faithful submission to you that we might be willing not to trust in our own plans and not to rely 
on our own strengths, but to put our faith and our trust and our hope completely and entirely on you. And I pray that as we do so, Father, that we might be transformed. We might be transformed from those who fight against you to those who follow you with everything that we have. And I pray that you would give us the strength to trust when it's difficult, the strength to carry on when darkness seems to uh, crowd in from every side. And I pray that um, you might give us the endurance to run in order that one day we might gain the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in the precious name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.